EMS1.com is the number one online resource for the EMS community and authoritative voice in pre-hospital care. Our members enjoy access to exclusive content from top EMS educators and physicians, award-winning e-newsletters, original video series, member-only product discounts, access to free continuing education courses, and much more. If you're an EMS and not a member of EMS1, join the community for free today. Just go to ems1.com backslash registration. That's ems1.com backslash registration to become a member. It is another great week to go inside EMS. I'm Chris, and here he is. Week five of the Kelly is not getting a dog show. KG Kelly Grayson, Kelly, what's going on? I am. Uh, we found a home for the dog. It's oh, good safe. news! Can, oh, very as nice. soon as we can, we can get him transport to to uh, New York. Uh, um, he's going to learn how to speak with the Yankee accent and have to park with the. How about that? Mark with a southern accent. A yeah. lot of a lot of pizza, a lot of uh, dirty water hot dogs. Uh, New Maybe York so. City. Yeah. Do you have to do any yeah. yard work? Because we did offer yard work last week. No, 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 no yard work. Okay, we're, good. We're going to arrange for a pet transfer service, or 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 get Nancy to bring him up there. When we hadn't decided what yet, but we've got a good friend who's an EMT who's going to. Going to take him off our hands and give him his forever home. Awesome. How about uh, and that? And it's about time. Yeah, I know, man. I was, I kind of, I don't know. I was looking kind of glim there for a while. So he's a, he's a good little puppy. Just, man, it's just too darn many critters in my house. It's like a, it's like a zoo down there, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's, it's the Nancy McGee Zoo and Animal Rehab Center. How about that? Yeah. Now all you got to do is find some federal funding and you'll be set. Yeah. So, well, good. What else yeah, is going on down there in world-famous Pitkin, Louisiana? Oh, man, it's the same as usual. The men are men. The sheep are kind of nervous. Um, That's right. <laughs> it's almost it's almost kilted to kick cancer time, isn't it? It is kilted to kick cancer time. I have uh, I've kind of, uh, um, due to time commitments, I've had to resign my position as a, a board member at Kilted to Kick Cancer. Um, and and step away from the the fundraising challenge but oh, no. it goes on in my absence and and if you're out there and you want to help a great cause uh find the kilted fundraiser of your choice uh at www.ktkc.com and uh donate to a to an excellent cause or, or get kilted yourself that's right you know one of the things that that old joke is uh you talked about the men are men and the sheep are nervous especially yeah. during kilted to kick cancer time why does Ke- right. why does kelly grayson wear a kilt Cause because his sheep, sheep he- spooked at, at the sound of a zipper that's yeah. right sheep can hear a zipper a mile away that's right so all right good look glad we can have a little fun at your expense so <laughs> of course you know kelly last week uh we had a little bit of an epiphany we just talked about kind of off the cuff about uh, intubation and we were talking about intubation in the field and, uh, you know, kind of mentioning that uh, where we would be with superglottic airways and the uh, journal for the American Medical Association, who we affectionately call JAMA, mm-hmm. had a had an article that came out or a study that came out on the 28th of August that really kind of 
touched on this issue, and it talked about the effect of a strategy of initial laryngeal tube insertion versus endotracheal intubation on 72-hour survival in adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And mm-hmm. there were some really interesting results that came out of this study. And, you know, just as kind of a piggyback of where we were last week, it became interesting that we continue this discussion to talk about, you know, superglottic airways compared to the intubation. And the results of this study, uh, we may have to take serious here and, you know, think about our practice of, you know, intubation in the field. But I'm going to give it to you and let you kind of, you do a good job of overviewing. So I'm going to let you kind of overview the study for the folks. This was a study published in JAMA um, uh, just just in the last week or so uh, by Henry Wang and uh, his cohorts. uh, And they studied endotracheal intubation versus laryngeal tube airway insertion uh, and its effects on 72-hour survival in adults without a hospital cardiac arrest. Primary outcome that they were looking at was 72-hour survival rates, uh, but they also looked at ROSC rates and survival to, to hospital uh, admission and, and uh, uh, the neurological outcomes. And the thing that, that, uh, that stands out here. Um, that it kind of confirms what we've what we've learned in, in other recent studies is that supraglottic airway insertion in cardiac arrest is at least as good as, if not resulting in better outcomes uh, than endotracheal intubation. Now, obviously, the story doesn't just end there, uh, but it, it it is another piece in the puzzle that shows that supraglottic airways are an effective means of managing an airway in cardiac arrest, and, and we really shouldn't be ashamed to use them. Um, we'll talk about the rest of it, but but that's where we are right now. Um, yeah. it, it's, the, the evidence is piling up that, that um, these tools, uh, whichever ones we're trying to use, are, are as effective, at least for the purposes of managing a resuscitation, uh, as endotracheal intubation. And one of the things that, you know, you and I have talked about, we've been really you know, uh, uh, opponents of is the fact that of a lot of things that we do in EMS has no real research, has no mm-hmm. real study. And now as we start to see this study, we've got to think about what this means. But just to give you a little bit more background, 27 EMS agencies from five metropolitan areas in the United States were part of this study. It was called the Pragmatic Airway Resuscitation Trial, or PART for short, P-A-R-T. And really, it was a randomized it was a randomized clinical trial comparing the King Airway with regular intubation in out of hospital cardiac arrest patients. And uh, just for a little bit more of the uh, background, the trial was from December first, twenty fifteen. It completed its enrollment on November fourth, twenty seventeen. There were three thousand and four subjects were enrolled, with fifteen hundred and five assigned the initial King. And 1499 assigned the initial endotracheal tube intubation, and patient demographics and the characteristics of both groups were uh, uh, put down as well as part of this study. So when we think about this, Kelly, this this just wasn't a, a one week thing. This is something that's yeah. been on for a long time. And when we talk about 3,000 people that were involved in this study, I mean, does it give you pause? Or does it make you say, you know what? I think we're onto something here. 
that's that's a pretty pretty solid end value. Uh, um, it's it's a lot more compelling than than looking at several hundred. That's for certain. Um, but once again, there you know the the just the cursory. Uh, uh, review of the study doesn't tell all the story. Uh, one of the things I notice in here is that the first pass success rate for superglottic airways uh, versus endotracheal intubation was significantly different. First pass success rate on the endotrach on the uh, superglottic airways was uh, was over ninety percent, uh, whereas the first pass success rate on endotracheal intubation hovered around fifty one percent. So it can be fairly said that um, superglottic airways result in better outcomes than poorly performed endotracheal intubation. The question is, is does superglottic airways pose a benefit over well-performed endotracheal intubation? But the sad fact is, and this has been borne out in, in Dr. Wang's other studies, that as a profession, we kind of suck at endotracheal intubation. So, so do we need to cling to it? Uh, get better at uh, cling to it and but get better at it or do we need to uh acknowledge the fact that uh we suck at it we're not going to get better at it and move to a better device uh, and that's the question it poses for me i you know my feelings on the subject i think we just need to get better at it but well let me uh, let me ask you this though details but yeah. let me ask you this question so when, when we think about the work of a paramedic and we think about the tools that were put into our toolbox one of the things that were said was, hey, I think paramedics can do some advanced airway maneuvers to help patients who are in need of an airway through intubation. Is it antiquated, though? Is it time now to think about it? I know when we talk about taking away the skill of intubation from a paramedic, it makes them lose their freaking minds. But now are we talking about a better tool with a superglottic airway for EMS folks rather than going through intubation. Here's one of the things that really caught my eye. So the elapsed time from first EMS arrival to a start of the King Airway was about 11 minutes versus 16, I'm sorry, 13.6 mm -hmm. minutes for the um, intubation. But, th but this is what caught my eye. And I asked you this question last week. Initial airway success rate was almost 90% with the King group 51% mm -hmm. with the ET group. So now when we start to think about it, if we know, and you go back to the, the question where you said, is it bad intubation? What would it have been if it was good intubation? But what we have here is bad intubation. We have a 51% success rate versus almost a 90% success rate. Mm -hmm. I got I got to think that we got to look at that to say, why are we even messing with it anymore? Um, I, I can see that. And, and I can agree with you if your agency has problems at endotracheal intubation. There, there was another study um, some years back. Now, this, uh, this dates back to 2012, which showed um, uh, better outcomes with endotracheal intubation and cardiac arrest. This was a study done by the uh, – or, or data extrapolated from the uh, uh, Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium primed study – uh, and they showed worse outcomes in endotracheal, uh, in superglottic airway uh, managed arrest versus endotracheal intubation. Now, there was, there's some speculation and some hypothesizing about why that was so. Um, uh, various pundits have hypothesized that a large pharyngeal balloon may uh, impede internal carotid artery blood flow, and that's the reason for the worse outcomes in superglottic uh, airway insertion. They looked at 
at 264 EMS agencies in the United States and Canada um, in this uh, in this primed study, and and extrapolated the data from that. But it begs the question: uh, How good was the the? I don't have the study in front of me right now, but how good were the first pass success rates in endotracheal intubation in that study? Uh, is it possible that that the disparity is somewhat less, or that uh, endotracheal intubation was performed much more effectively in this study, and that's why it skewed the the results in favor of ETI? The question for me, Chris, is we're not asking here in this current study by Dr. Wang, we're not asking here, is endotracheal intubation a good thing or a bad thing? What we're asking is, is endotracheal intubation by paramedics a good thing or a bad thing? Now, if no one is questioning the efficacy of endotracheal intubation performed by non-paramedics, in other words, CRNAs, respiratory therapists, uh, physicians, anesthesiologists, if no one questions the efficacy of that particular intervention, um, and and they're not comparing that to to superglottic airways, why is it that our standard is so darn low that we accept it as a given that we just can't do it well and we need something else? Yeah, and I think another thing to think about as well, too, is that the ability to intubate, the inability to practice intubation, uh, secondarily, when we think about these studies, it'd be interesting to know uh, how many attempts? Was this just one attempt? Mm-hmm. Was this just an initial attempt? That did they get? Did they get the recess? Did they get the tube after a second or third attempt? You know. So how did they calculate the fifty-one percent? I'd want to know that. Secondarily, you know, one of the things that I've talked about that I've done is, you know, I'm going to give you one look. I'm going to give you one try, yeah. one attempt. And if you can intubate, fine. If you can't, let's just go ahead and go to the adjunct airway. But, you know, when we start to think about now, when we think about return of spontaneous circulation and are folks leaving neurologically intact from the ER secondary to ROSC, uh, this is showing that, uh, you know, the adjunct airway did a better job of people leaving uh, neurologically intact than they did during the intubation phase. It's 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 enough now to make me think as a leader to go to my medical director to say, Doc, what do you want to do here? And if I would have had my way, as I mentioned last week, I would have moved the superglottic airway to the first responders, and by the time the transport unit showed up on scene, if they needed an airway, a superglottic airway would have been in place. Uh, I, I don't dispute that at all, and I think that's a, a pretty... Uh, um, reasonable uh, approach to the issue. I think it's becoming increasingly obvious uh, that as a profession, we don't do a good job at endotracheal intubation. We, we just don't. Um, so you know, all issues of fish or cut bait aside, you know, do we, do we get to, uh, do we commit to doing it well, or do we find something that is better suited to our talents? Me, I'm an idealist. I like to think, you know, hey, there are pockets of excellence throughout this country. There are systems that do endotracheal intubation very well. Um, But for whatever reason, we're not emulating those systems. Uh, What we're doing instead is beating on our chest and bragging about how we intubate people upside down at 3 o'clock in the morning in a muddy ditch with a cop holding a flashlight over our shoulder. Falling down Uh, the stairs. Falling falling down down the stairs. But but no, no. See, the first was bragging. Oh, okay. Falling down the stairs and accidentally intubating people is merely a statement of Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean (laughs) to throw a monkey wrench in the works there. No, I'm just – but that's that's hyperbole to make a point. But – 
you know, we we don't do a good job at it. And and I think, in my opinion, one of the primary reasons we don't do a good job at it and we haven't improved how well we do it is because we're too invested in the macho, uh, we do it better than anybody else and we don't need, we, we, we just don't recognize or don't acknowledge the fact that we have improvements to make. Instead, you know, uh, everyone says, well, well, maybe your agency sucks, but mine doesn't. My response would be, show me the data. Have you ever studied success rates, uh, in the, uh, first pass success rates at your agency? And, and many of the people posturing the loudest for endotracheal intubation have not. Um, so, but you can't refute the, the results of this study. Uh, and we've run into that. We've seen the same thing proven um, at, at my own agency. You know, Acadian tripled their cardiac arrest survival rates with level one or level two um, uh, neurological outcomes, either either mildly impaired or no impairment at all. Tripled them by doing two things. We quit taking dead people to the hospital and we de-emphasized endotracheal intubation and quit penalizing people who inserted a supraglottic airway instead. Right. In other words, we moved superglottic airways up the hierarchy, and recently we've allowed we've started in in our company to allow our our EMTs to insert them. Uh, it's been within the EMS scope EMT scope of practice in Louisiana for quite some time, but it's a fairly new development that Acadian um, is, is allowing their employees to do it. But we've you know our our medical director and our leadership has acknowledged that hey these things work. Uh, and we want to do the best for our patients and for us and for our agency, this is probably the best choice. Now, they don't forbid our medics to, to intubate, uh, but the point is made abundantly clear that unless you're really good at intubation and you can do it well, uh, pass it on the first attempt without interrupting any of the other uh, important things about a resuscitation, namely chest compressions, then we don't mind if you don't do it and you let your EMT partner insert a supraglottic airway instead. So I just want to I just want to add a couple things here before yeah. I ask you my next question. There was a study that we did talk about that happened in England. It was called the Airway Two Randomized Clinical Trial, yep. and it was done with eye gels. And mm -hmm. you know I, I'm an eye gel fan. You know over Me the too. King Airway, but their findings suggest that there were no differences at out of hospital discharge or 30 days after the arrest of the trial patients. Of course, one of the things that was in that uh, study that you and I both had comment about was the fact that they had a 26 or some odd minute, uh, yeah. if my memory serves me right, I don't know if it was 26, but it was 20-something, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. that that has one of the reasons. So let me ask you this question, because you bring up a really good point. And as we get up there in time, maybe this is our last discussion point here. But... So you made a comment about some agencies do it well, some agencies uh, need a little bit of work. Do you put something in place in your agency? And let's just talk about hypothetically, we're both EMS leaders. We're both going to make decisions for our organization. If you intubate and you have successful intubation rate above 90%, you use endotracheal tube. If you have anything mm -hmm. below a 90%, you don't even try and you use a, and you use a, a superglottic airway. Are you talking about... Uh, uh Applicable to individual providers, individual as, individual providers yeah, in an agency. No, no see, I don't, I don't I don't necessarily agree with that because it disincentivizes getting better at a particular skill. You know, to my what mind, what do you mean? Go ahead and define that for well, me. Well, if, if you if you had a patient, if you had a paramedic whose success rate was 
with endotracheal intubation was 75%. Um, yet their success rate with, with uh, supraglottic airways was 95%. And you approach that on an ad hoc individual paramedic basis, then what incentive does the paramedic have to intubate someone, thereby getting better at it, getting more practice. But at they it, just didn't show thing. up. They didn't just show up with a seventy-five percent intubation no, no, rate. No, they didn't. But but hey, you know, and I'm being generous here because seventy-five percent is pretty darn good compared to uh, most of uh, of Wang's uh, data. Um, you know, most first pass success rates at, at, at on average are probably substantially below that. I would say, okay, here's your deal. Um, if we were to implement something like you describe, I would be in favor of that, provided we had some type of mechanism in place to increase proficiency within tracheal intubation. We say, okay, you're 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 demoted to probationary airway status, and you're going to insert a supraglottic airway up until the point where you can, in front of our medical directors or our clinical education people. Um, demonstrate improved proficiency in endotracheal intubation. And you have to do X amount of live intubations uh, at at whatever facility we have a contract with. So if we had some mechanism in place for improving uh, their their proficiency in endotracheal intubation, um, and that was just a, you know, the use of the supraglottic airways was just a, a temporary thing, I, I see no problem with that. You, you still have a an extremely effective uh, easily utilized um, superglottic airway that that you know poses its own benefits and, and has a very you know shallow learning curve and and skills rust out and and maintenance is not as big of an issue, but you also have some plan in place to improve the other less uh, often utilized skill uh, of endotracheal intubation. The, the thing we're we're um, failing to recognize here is that sometimes there. They're rare, but they are. There are places for a definitive airway, for a chunk of 7.5 millimeter plastic uh, through the vocal cords. Um, and even though they're becoming, those instances are becoming increasingly rare in our practice. Uh, the times they are needed, they are really needed. Think of them. Think of the endotracheal tube as a fire extinguisher. Um, you don't really need a fire extinguisher until you really really need a fire extinguisher. Um, and, and we, we kind of need to look at it that way. Uh, we need to get better at it, but let's not ignore superglottic airways, uh, in the meantime, but Hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Um, is it time we start adopting superglottic airways as our airway of choice? Uh, or is there still hope to gain proficiency at endotracheal intubation? Give us your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, the intubation master, I'm Kelly Grace. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>